Support for WPR comes from Doulaing the Doula, offering birth and postpartum training and certification programs for medical professionals and other interested humans. More information about training is at doulaworkshop.com. I'm Emily Auerbach, and this is University of the Air. The first weekend of March 2023, the UW-Madison campus and community held memorial services mourning the recent loss from cancer of former Chancellor Rebecca Blank. As another way to remember and honor Rebecca Blank, we rebroadcast this interview I did with her years ago when she was in the third year of her nine-year tenure as chancellor. Coming up, she discusses her parents' background, her love of economics, her concept of the Wisconsin idea, and her perceptions of what what then was a fairly new role for her as chancellor of a large land-grant public university. Prior to becoming chancellor, Rebecca Blank served as acting U.S. Secretary of Commerce, she has a distinguished academic career, earning her Ph.D. in economics from MIT. One of her award-winning books is called It Takes a Nation, A New Agenda for Fighting Poverty. She became chancellor of UW-Madison in July 2013. Welcome to University of the Air. Thank you, Emily. Good to be here. I'm always fascinated by sort of people's background, what got them into the area that they're in now. And I was wondering if we could start by looking back. I saw somewhere, I think it was in an On Wisconsin article, that your father was an extension agent. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Both my father and my mother, though. My mother stopped working professionally when her children were born. But um, both of them worked in extension. My dad started as a soil science expert and ended up in um, tourism and community development working in Minnesota. And what do you think from your own background led you to the path you took of being fascinated by economics and then going from that to Secretary of Commerce and then ultimately here to Madison as the chancellor. So, you know, I got into economics largely by taking a couple of economics classes in, in college and just finding them really exciting. I, I started as an English major. <laughs> and um, I think when I look back on it, I, you know, I'm not at all surprised I ended up in social sciences. So, you know, the, the surprise was I didn't know that enough about myself at age 18 to start there. But, um, you know, economics you know, addressed all of these issues that I just thought were deeply important about um, work and life and poverty and what happens to people and incomes um, at the same time that um, it actually used mathematical tools to get there. And I was very good in math. And, you know, economics gave me the chance to actually work on the issues that I wanted, but not completely walk away from all the technical stuff that I found was really fun to do. And um, so I became an economics major and uh, never really looked back from that. It was, it was the right choice for me. And as you serve as chancellor of this large land-grant mm-hmm. institution with, what, over 40,000 students yeah. and big budget and so on. What kind of overlap do you see between what you're doing as chancellor here and the role, say, of Secretary of Commerce? Well, you know, actually, these um, these jobs are more similar than you might expect. You know, I was the Deputy Secretary of Commerce and moved into the acting job. And the Deputy Secretary is essentially the COO, the chief person in charge of managing the strategic operations of the entire um, Department of Commerce, which is a very large organization. It's a $10 billion organization. So um, that really gave me quite a bit of experience managing a large public organization. And while I'm not the one who oversees directly the human resources and the budget and other things, things. I was in that role for a while. And that's very, very helpful when you walk into this organization. You have to know when you're in this big a place, you can't keep your eyes on things. You can't do this through personally knowing people and getting knowledge from them. You have to know what questions to ask and what indicators to look at. So um, my work in commerce as the deputy secretary, I think, was very helpful to my ability to know um, some sense of how to manage this organization, what to keep my eyes on. On the other hand, my work as acting secretary was very similar to this job. You know, there you were in the leadership position. And I've often said that about my job here, and it was true of my job at Commerce as well. You have two roles. One is to explain the outside world to your internal constituents and explain to students and staff and faculty why we're dealing with the things we're dealing with that are coming at us. At the same time, it's equally important that you are the spokesperson for the organization Mm -hmm. to the outside world and explain to the rest of the world what is this strange place called a university and a research one university and and these things that you do in classes and why you bring the class together in the way it does. And, you know, the people have a lot of questions about universities. They're, they're different from many other organizations, and they don't understand them. And I am in some ways the, um, you know, the, the first spokesperson, the person most responsible for trying to explain the university to the world around it. 
And um, that's an incredibly important role, particularly at this moment in time. And Bascom, where it's situated, where it's on the other end of State Street from our state <laughs> capital, is kind of a symbolic location in a way. It's it's mm-hmm. up on a hill. Mm-hmm. It seems to be its own entity in a way, but we are a state organization at the university. How do you see the relationship between your office in Bascom and then down State Street to the other end with the state capital? So, you know, the university was created as part of the creation of the state. We started in 1848, like the state of Wisconsin. And um, this was not a university that waited until the land grants that were given by President Lincoln, even though that was very important to the university. This state decided early on, and if you go back and read the history, that you could not develop the state without having the educated citizenry that a university would provide. And we have been here 167 years, like the state, and have throughout that time been supported by the citizens of this state. We are deeply integrated with the state. Um, and I take that as one of the real strengths of this university and indeed the strengths of public universities everywhere is that we are we are part of the community in a very real sense. Now, the Wisconsin idea, which mm-hmm. obviously has been around for more than 100 years uh, since President Charles Van Hise talked about it, um, I am delighted to be at a place where the commitment to outreach is so strong we have our own name for it. You know that we mm-hmm. we call it the Wisconsin idea, and I've I've been I've said this in a number of settings. I've been at a lot of different universities in my life, and all of them, to one extent or another, give lip service to outreach. Of course, we do this in the community. I've never been at a place before coming to the University of Wisconsin here in Madison that lives that so intensely and that believes it so intensely. And um, you know, in my first six months here, um, people would come up to me literally on campus and say, "You do know about the Wisconsin <laughs> idea. You do know that yeah. we're you know part." the rest of the state. And and that's one of our real strengths. And it's one of the things that um, I'm not very happy about in this particular political moment is that folks seem to have forgotten a bit how deeply entwined we are with the state and all the things that we do from our ag school, which has been absolutely fundamental to the agricultural industry here in Wisconsin, has some wonderful, wonderful, very close collaborations to the things we do in our school of medicine and its close collaboration with healthcare and clinics and industry all across the state. I mean, they're just, um, you know, hundreds of ways in which we are out in the state every day. And you know, some some of that's just taken for granted. People don't even think about, oh, that person came from the university because that person comes every month, right? And right. and we need to remind people how this university is connected to the state, and we need to remind ourselves on campus as well regularly how important it is that we are part of this state. One of my favorite examples, a very small one of the Wisconsin mm-hmm. ideas, um, I was doing a radio show as a guest, not as the host, about mm-hmm. women writers and. People could call in with questions after we aired a documentary. I think it was about the Bronte sisters. And I could hear cows mooing in the background Mm -hmm. as someone was asking questions. And I think that notion that Charles Van Hise articulated about the boundaries of the university being Mm -hmm. the boundaries of the state is is really special. Are there some other examples that people might not think of? You know, we think of the agriculture, the extension folks going out and helping a farmer. Um, What about some of the other partnerships or discoveries that have happened here at UW-Madison that affect people in their daily lives that they may not even know about? Well, I will say we do a lot in the humanities, and particularly with high schools and with um, communities around the state, um, you know, bringing you know, literature, theater, the arts, dance um, out around the state. And that's, I think, a really important part of the educational structure of the state is our involvement in that. And other schools in the system do that as well. You know, there are... Um, a wide variety of things that have happened here at Wisconsin that affects the state. This, um, <laughs> I was just walking by the plaque as I walked into this building. Um, this this radio station mm-hmm. was one of the first radio stations in um, the country. Right. And um, it was a group of people here who were very advanced at that point in terms of what they were doing with this new wireless technology who started this radio station and therefore brought radio to rural Wisconsin at an age when you know, they thought that had never happened. That really connected people mm-hmm. to the world in a number of ways. And, um, you know, those those sorts of pieces of our history are important. 
And yeah. you seem to be traveling the state. I saw a picture on the UW website where you're, I think you're knee-deep in cranberries. I was out in a cranberry marsh. <laughs> Tell us about that. Why were you in so, a cranberry So, you know, I actually have one of the things that I love doing, and I, I did this in the Department of Commerce, and it's one of the best parts of that job and this job, is to go out and visit different businesses in the state and talk about how they are connected to the university and, you know, how we can help them to get the sort of workers they need or to work with them on some of the innovation and research fronts. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was out at um, uh, the Oshkosh Truck um, Company, gosh, I think in September, right, bef- you know, right before they got that big federal contract to uh, manufacture these huge um, transport vehicles. Uh, you know, they're trucks, but really amazing trucks. I got a ride in one of these um, that can be used in almost any terrain. And um, th- those are going to supply the military for the next decade. Um, so uh, two weeks ago, I got to go to a cranberry farm. And while I have been to a lot of different farms, I've got a lot of relatives who are on farms in the state of Missouri. I've never been to a cranberry farm. And um, it was really interesting to see both the size and scope of this operation, as well as the level of capitalization that was required to, you know, set up these marshes and put the watering systems together and sculpt the land in the way that, that um, and I, I was just really impressed with what they were doing. I, I learned, which I did not know and should have, that the cranberry is the state fruit of the uh, state of Wisconsin, and um, that we produce more than half of all the cranberries used in the world. So, uh, I didn't know that either. It was, it, it was a really interesting visit, and I, I love the picture on our website where uh, the dean of the College of Agriculture, Kate Vandenbosch, and I got to put on waders and go out <laughs> yes. into the cranberry marsh itself. I'm amazed. I've been at UW as a professor for over 30 years, but I'm amazed how much about this university I still don't know because it's so huge. Can you give us some sense of the scope of UW-Madison and also how it fits into the UW system. And you're, you're mm-hmm. chancellor of UW-Madison, but then there's also the UW system that we're mm-hmm. part of and, and we're a flagship organization. Yeah, let me talk a little about the scope of Madison because it's one of the things that makes this such a fun job is, you know, there's such a wide range of issues and um, activities out there that the university does that one can go and engage in at any time. One of the things that's really unique about UW-Madison, and it gives us some enormous strength in today's world of research and education, is that we are one of the few universities, even among the big publics, that has everything on one contiguous campus. So we have, you know, within a long walk, admittedly, but about mm-hmm. a mile of each other, the entire health sciences area, this huge hospital, all of the um, the medical school and public health, pharmacy, nursing, you start moving um, eastward, you get to the vet med school, you then have all of the College of Agriculture and and life sciences and all of its life sciences and biotechnological research that's associated with that and that in turn overlaps with the health sciences. And then you have all the professional schools. You've got law and business. You've got education. You've got the School of Human Ecology, which grew out of the College of Agriculture. Um, You've got the College of Engineering. And then all of the liberal arts and the full range from the humanities to the natural and physical sciences and the social sciences. And having all of that together on one campus, as I say, is quite unusual. It gives us enormous both educational strength and research strength, because it says that students can come here and pursue an enormously wide range of interests and, and, and areas of study. So, you know, you don't come and, well, we're good in this area, so everyone goes and becomes a biologist. But let's say you also are actually sort of interested in dance. Well, you can do that mm-hmm. as a minor, or you're interested in some aspect of, you know, what's happening in astronomy and meteorology. We're really strong in that area, so you, you could go take courses there. So it gives us this breadth of education, which I think is just wonderful for people you're educating to be global citizens in a changing world. At the same time, as it really gives us strength in these big interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary research projects that take on big scientific questions in which you can't deal with just out of one discipline or one perspective and where you need the chemists and the biologists and the neurologists and people from the School of Social Work and Psychology working on brain studies or you know working on things that are deeply important to society. Um, Increasingly, the research money is going to big interdisciplinary projects of this sort. And one of the reasons we are as successful as we are as a research institution and are going to continue to be successful is we're very well set up for that because of our size and our scope and and what we have here on this campus. At the same time, that that size and the scope can be overwhelming for someone coming to this school from a small town. I always remember I had a 
literature class for 400 undergraduates. They would then go to yep. sec- discussion sections. But I had one student who was, I think, from Oconto Falls or Balsam Lake or somewhere. Um, and she said there were more people in that one class than in her whole town. Mm-hmm. And it was overwhelming. I suggested that she sit in the front row and kind of <laughs> for a while and just kind of almost pretend that that size wasn't yeah. there. What do you say to someone who yeah. and is looking at it as big in terms of just overwhelming? How, how do you compete with this, the experience of a small liberal arts college? So I actually think that's something we do quite well here. Um, if you go and ask students, you know, gosh, what did you think coming here? What were you most worried about? How did it go? I can promise you that nine out of 10 students will tell you that what most worried them when they were coming here was that this was so big and mm-hmm. they wouldn't find a group of friends. They'd get a little lost. They wouldn't know what was happening. And almost inevitably when students say that, they laugh and say within a week, you know, that was uh-huh. gone. And some of this, of course, is we really do want our first year students living in the dorms, living with each other, getting to know each other. And we work hard at trying to create those communities and to get people interacting early on. We have have this wonderful um, activity called the First Year Interest Groups, FIGS, um, that increasing numbers of our freshmen are taking, which puts groups of students together with some shared interests and puts them into some special classes with some special writing exercises, which is also Mm -hmm. very good educationally, and gets them into a small learning community so they get to know each other. And then, of course, we have something like you know, a thousand different student organizations on campus. And we really encourage students from the very beginning to, you know, get involved in some student organization. So you get to know people through your dorm. You might get to, you get to know them through some of those first year classes. If you, you know, particularly if you're in one of these figs, um, you get to know them through the, um, you know, student activities. And then, you know, you meet people quickly. You know, one of the good things about such a large campus is it's actually pretty easy to find folks who share some of your interests. And um, that's good. Now, some people do get lost. And that's one of the reasons why we really work in the dorms to have, um, you know, dorm assistants and um, uh, people there who, you know, try to pay attention to or their students are just staying in the room all day or their students who are getting lost, students who aren't quite making it. Because then you do have to do some of that outreach as well. And you need eyes on the students to do that, which is Mm -hmm. one reason why the dorms are helpful for that. You also have the honors program yes. to try to yes. create sort of yes. special activities for yes. those who want to go beyond. Another yeah. thing that another program that that you inherited but seem to have embraced, um, yeah. maybe because of your original English major background, or just is the go big read idea yeah. that the whole campus will have a book and then there will yeah. be discussions around that. With this year's uh, Just Mercy book. It seemed as if it was picked up by a lot of different classes in interesting ways. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, we um, we do pick a book every year. We try to get it out to the community. We hand it out to all of our freshmen at commencement and um, really encourage classes across the university to try to find ways to use this. So we often try to take a book that can be used in science classes as well as in social studies or humanities classes. And um, this year we actually just sort of had the coming together of the right book at the right time with Just Mercy by Brian Stevens. Um, Mr. Stevenson is a legal aid lawyer who um, uh, has set up an organization down in um, Alabama that basically um, you know, works with low-income individuals and particularly people on death row. He's done a lot of work with children who are sentenced to lifetime in prison at age 13. And this book is just beautifully written. It sort of tells stories of what he's experienced in the criminal justice system. And of course, putting this book against the public events of the last year, including the events here in Madison mm-hmm. with the Tony Robinson shooting, just enormous interest in this question of um, particularly racial justice and other forms of justice in the criminal justice system. And how should we be thinking about that. And, um, you know, this book, I think, really got a lot of people into that issue at a level of deeper um, interest and commitment. So we had a huge crowd when he mm-hmm. came to speak. We've had more classes using this book than we've ever seen before. It's just been incredibly effective. And, you know, it, it's it's another way to pull the community together. When you have a community this big, you need to be doing things that create shared identity. And, you know, Go Big Read in many ways is not unlike the Saturday football games, right? right. It pulls the community together, it brings them together around a common set of interests and something everyone can talk about with a similar language, regardless of where they come from. And um, you always have to be looking for those opportunities in a big institution like this. I know former dean of students, Mary Rouse, once said that it sometimes to the community could seem as if there was a drawbridge up at the other end of 
Park Street, that mm-hmm. in South Madison, where the income level mm-hmm. is lower, uh, traditionally those of color, and then looking down to North Park Street with the campus, mm-hmm. that sometimes it seemed as if it was in its own world and not welcoming them there. What other kinds of programs would you say there are that are, you know, because we've seen the race to equity report mm-hmm. with Dane County actually having a terrible record in terms of the achievement gap, economic disparities, and so on. How, how do you see sort of the university and then this larger community, particularly the low-income areas of Madison that feel excluded? Yes. You know, we are part of this community. Our faculty and staff work here. Many of our students live here for many years. And um, we've got to be part of community challenges. And um, certainly some of the challenges around um, inequalities and particularly racial inequalities in the schools and the poverty differentials and the employment differentials are, are, are important for the university to be very closely involved with. And, you know, there's a lot of ways in which we get involved with the community. Um, we actually did a survey of you know, sort of all of our faculty and staff saying, are you doing anything that's community-involved? And what came back to us was, you know, literally a thousand um, different initiatives, many of which we at Bascom Hall knew nothing about. But let me mention a few of the major things that I think are really quite important for the university. The first, and um, I, I take this very seriously, is encouraging our students to be involved in the community as we call them Badger volunteers. Mm-hmm. The Margaret Center for Public Service, I think last year, placed some 1,500 students as volunteers in the community, many of them tutoring in the schools, working exactly on mm-hmm. some of those outcome gaps. And, um, you know, that's a win-win. Not only, I hope, is that very good for the community, for the schools, for the people that they're serving, but it's great for our students as out-of-classroom education and out-of-classroom experiences in a world they might not otherwise see. So that's one. Secondly, um, as you know, we, about a year ago, opened a um, sort of off-campus little piece of the university down on South Park Street at the Old Villager Mall. Mm -hmm. And um, we are running a variety of programs out of that, both educational programs. We have some um, public health programs going with um, some of the um, low-income communities and communities of color around things like prostate cancer and, um, you know, certain health issues. Um, Our legal aid clinic from the law school works out of there, and you run your um, your Odyssey Odyssey program, I think, meets there frequently. And that presence, I think, is important. We're hoping to do a number of admissions events there this year to make it clear that when we talk about coming to the university, we're not just talking to the kids of faculty members, but we're talking to the entire community. So that's important. The third thing I'd mention um, is... um, something called Forward Madison, which is a collaboration between um, some people at our School of Education and the Madison Public Schools. CUNA Mutual has put money into this, and um, you know I actually put a good amount of my discretionary funds into this as well, because I think it's so important that we're working directly on some of those educational equity issues. And Forward Madison is working on mentoring teachers. It's working on trying to keep tr- create a pipeline of high school students from communities of color coming into the School of Education. Um, there's a whole variety of pieces of that particular initiative. And I'm quite excited about it. And I think it's, it's, it seems to be doing good things as it unfolds. That's great. I'm going to turn to some questions about challenges and frustrations and changes here at UW-Madison when we continue in a moment with University of the Year. I'm Emily Auerbach. Today we memorialize the late Chancellor Emerita Rebecca Blank by rebroadcasting an interview with her about her role as Chancellor when she was a third of her way into the nine-year tenure. I asked her about the famous plaque at the UW, whatever may be the limitations which trammel inquiry elsewhere, we believe that the great state University of Wisconsin should ever encourage that continual and fearless sifting and winnowing by which alone the truth can be found. Those are the words on a plaque given by the class of 1910 to the University of Wisconsin speaking to the issue of academic freedom. I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Chancellor Rebecca Blank, and we are talking about being chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I was just going to ask you what that plaque, what those words, the sifting and winnowing idea, mean to you. 
So I, I love those words. And those are words that are quoted around the country and even around the world as the bedrock of what a, how a university should think about itself and how the public around the university should think of it. Um, those words came out of a dispute over um, actually an economist who was getting quite involved with progressive politics. And it was proposed that he should be dismissed from his position since he was obviously speaking out on issues that some people were not happy in ways that people were not happy with. And the Board of Regents took this up. And those words come out of a Board of Regents decision that essentially says, um, you know, it's, it's a very early statement of academic freedom that um, a university should have people from all viewpoints. It should be, you know, those view, the, people's ideas can go anywhere. There's nothing that's not thinkable around a university and that we have to protect that. And that type of sifting and winnowing of all ideas and of really open discussion and open research is important to protect at a public university. And those words have been tested again and again, not just at Wisconsin, but elsewhere, because there often is conflict between the perceived ideas of the day and where certain university faculty are going and what they're saying and what research they're doing. And I take it as very important for our university, for any major public university, to protect itself um, and to protect its academic freedom. And, and of course, with those words to quote here, um, we, we have a great heritage. I would think it's sometimes difficult because just as with the ACLU defending, oh, maybe the right of Nazis mm-hmm. to march in Skokie or... You know, sometimes you may be defending the right to hold opinions that are actually um, that that are just hor- feel horrible to to you personally. Um, have you mm-hmm. found in the two and a half years that you've been chancellor a situation where you are needing as a university to defend faculty or defend ideas or defend things that that really seem antithetical to to certain other principles? I have not had to defend. I think some of the cases that I know some of my colleagues elsewhere have had to, um, you know, there's always a little bit of upset of certain things happening here on campus by either legislators or other people. One of the things that I'm perhaps most disturbed about, and I understand that people can agree or disagree with this, are the um, some of the current attacks on, on climate change and on, on some of the climate and environmental science that is being done. And, um, you know, that's something that I think we need to defend on our campus. And again, whether, whether you would agree or disagree with, um, you know, the outcomes that are being presented there, it is very valid research and research that needs to move forward. I think it also comes up sometimes with student organizations, Mm -hmm. which kinds of political views, which kinds of topics, which things can come under the umbrella of the student organization and and where student fees can go toward those groups. Yes, and you often um, see this as well when um, there are invitations to certain speakers on campus. And again, we we haven't had a really huge upset over something in the way that some other campuses have in the last couple of years since I've been here. But it could happen at any time that people invite a speaker who many folks find their views really antithetical. And, you know, my reaction is a university is about open dialogue. And um, you can't shout people down because you disagree with them on university. You've got to owe them the respect of listening to them. You can disagree with them in many, many ways. But again, university is a place where any idea should be thinkable. And then we can debate it, (laughs) right? And people can come up in violent disagreement of it. But um, it's a place where those ideas can be debated, whether you like them or don't like them. And um, that does make universities uncomfortable places oftentimes. And um, places where you have to keep defending this idea of, of, of academic freedom and freedom of thought. So what keeps you up at night? Like if, if you find yourself sort of worrying or um, feeling stress, what are the the issues that, that do that for you? So um, I've obviously um, been quite worried about our financial situation. And I do think my biggest long-term challenge at this university is finding a financial model for this university that relies less and less on um, state funding, but that also which allows broad spread access, not just to people from across Wisconsin, but also to a very diverse group of students, both low income and higher income. And as um, state dollars continue to shrink, and as we're under, you know, and, and uh, you know, we have lots of conversations about where should um, tuition dollars be set. Um, you know, these are just really hard conversations. We are a truly excellent university across a range of what issues. And to maintain excellence costs money. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of other things as well, but it does cost money. We are not a cheap place to operate. And if we, you know, 
Could we provide education at a much lower rate? Yes, but it wouldn't be the same quality of a university. And that would be a true loss to the state in all sorts of ways. So um, trying to figure out how we maintain this stable financial base and, you know, working with the state legislator on that, communicating with the citizens of the state, working with the with our um, stakeholders inside with our students. Um, as you know, we've um, raised out-of-state tuition. We've raised some of our professional school tuition. I think those things should be set at a market rate. And that's an argument and a discussion I'm willing to have. And then we can come back and talk about what, what should be the subsidy to in-state students and how do we set that? Um, what sort of financial aid should we be getting? Should we be generating ourselves or getting from the state? Um, Equally important in um, this world of financial issues is um, the importance of doing um, fundraising from your friends and alumni. And as you know, mm -hmm. we've launched a new fundraising campaign publicly just a few weeks ago. And um, that is deeply important. There's not an institution of higher education in this country, public or private, that doesn't understand that one important branch of its financial stability has to come from alumni fundraising. And we've got a wonderful group of alumni to, to work with on that. You've already mentioned the Mortgage Center, named after the mortgages. Mm -hmm. That's sort of an unprecedented amount of um, gift money, isn't it, that has come from John and Tasha Mortgage? John and Tasha Mortgage are our most generous donors, and they're wonderful people, not just to the university, but to the state. They've done a number of things around the state that go well beyond the university. We had... Um, a gift this last year from the mortgages, which I know many people know something about, but it's a story I just love to tell. Um, almost exactly a year ago, it was, I think, our last home football game, excepting Thanksgiving, it was sometime in early November, um, we publicly announced a matching gift from John and Tasha Mortgage, where they put $100 million out there to be matched by other individuals to support faculty uh, chairs and professorships. And let me just say in the academic world that being a chaired faculty member is sort of a coin of the realm. It's an indication that you, you know, really are top rated among your colleagues. And we have very few chairs compared to many of our peers. I mean, you know, just we, we have very little, few of those to give. That's not something I could ever use state dollars for or tuition dollars. I can't use federal research dollars. You need private money and you endow a chair and it not only covers a part of someone's salary, but it also gives them research funding that, you know, they can use in all sorts of ways to start new projects before they're ready to go out and, um, you know, apply for grants from, from other places. So they put a million dollars on the table to fund faculty chairs. And um, we had a number of conversations we with, with mortgages as well as myself with the head of our development operation about how many years it would take us to get those that money matched. Well, um, within six months, we had to go to John and Tasha and say, you know, we're at 95 million. We've still got 30 active conversations that haven't closed. How do we close this off? Do we just sort of say, last one in the door, all the rest of you are out of luck? And John and Tasha, being the generous people they are, said, well, let's do the following. Let's set a final date. And anything that you can generate by that final date, we will match. And if you don't make 100 million, we aren't going to match 100 million. But if you go over, we'll match wherever you are. So we set the date of June 8th, which was I think it was about seven months after this got announced. And um, as of June 8th, we had $125 million in matching money. John and Tasha matched that. So that gave us essentially $250 million in new endowed funds for faculty chairs. It more than doubled the number of chaired professorships that we have available at this university. Every school and college in the university had some of these mortgage match chairs. We had a wonderful celebration mm -hmm. of this just a couple of weeks ago. And this is a transformative gift for the university. In the long run, it's transformative because of our ability to recruit and retain top faculty members. In the short run, it's transformative because of the momentum it gives us, of the sense of what we can do with our alumni to support things at this university that I say I can't support with state or tuition dollars that are in many ways a margin of excellence for the school that will keep us among one of the top universities in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, I, what about the flip side of sort of fundraising, which is sometimes those who give money also expect to have more influence or there are mm -hmm. strings attached. I know even on a very small scale when I do fundraising for the UW Odyssey Project where mm -hmm. I'm dependent on, yeah. you know, yeah. over a thousand donors, sometimes people say, well, you can have this money if you do A, B, and yeah. C or so, earmark it for something that doesn't seem quite fair. Yeah. Money comes with its own problems. Yes, and let me say there's two things to be said about that. One is 
you can't take every gift that is offered you. You have to know when to say no. And if people are offering you gifts that don't fit your priorities, or even more so, there are many gifts that actually take money. <laughs> you know, they eat mm-hmm. other resources. Um, and if it's not part of your priorities, you've got to know when to say no. Um, when I was a dean and first starting to do fundraising, I took a gift that I should never have taken, and it ended up with the um, the, the giver backing out of it. But it just we couldn't we couldn't mm-hmm. use it. And I was so excited about getting this big gift, but that I never stopped to think. But how would we? actually make this work. And um, I I learned a real lesson there. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone in fundraising will tell you there's some things you say no to. The other comment I'd make is that we write gift agreements with everyone. We are very clear about what this gift does and doesn't do. So for instance, if you endow a chair, you do not have any right to help select the person who's going to hold that chair. That is what the departments do as they set their priorities and determine. Now, you could say this is a chair in Norwegian studies, and Mm -hmm. the department has to follow that, but you can't select which Norwegian studies scholar gets to come. So, you know, we work very hard on those gift agreements to make it quite clear to donors that we are deeply appreciative of this gift, but it doesn't mean that they can tell us how to run the department or the place in which they're giving money. And our good donors understand that, but it is something you have to constantly talk about and, and, and think about. Another yeah. thing that can happen sometimes if you're in fundraising mode, um, I find this with the small you know, Odyssey program that I speak about, is you can feel you have to always put, I guess it's sort of almost like boosterism or showcasing, you have to stress the positives if you're wanting to get donations when inside you might be wanting to say, oh, but there's this failure or I'm frustrated by this or here's something we're not doing well. When I mean, I I think it's also important to be able to be very honest about some of the things that Mm -hmm. maybe UW-Madison is lagging behind its peers or could do better and not feel always as if you have to sort of make a case. And I should say that's not just an issue of fundraising. That's an issue of how do you talk about the university with the legislature, with the citizens of the state, and with those inside the university. And I always think it's one of the real balances that anyone in leadership in these institutions is always walking along a knife edge of, on the one hand, nobody wants the leader to stand up and talk about everything that's going wrong and all the challenges Mm -hmm. and how they just can't take it anymore. You know, I've known people, you know, whenever they open their mouth, they sort of give you this downer sermon. You know, it's, you get tired of it, right? Um, on the other hand, you can't just be the booster, right? right? You have to be, if you don't have a pretty honest and clear-eyed view of this institution and where it's doing well and where it isn't, you can't lead it, right? And um, so I know whenever I go out and talk, and you know, we've, we've recently been through some rather difficult budget decisions with the state legislature, and we're doing some things that are really hurting at the university in terms of budget cuts. But... Um, you know, I whenever I talk, I try to talk with a both and. Look, there's some wonderful things happening at the university, things we should all be proud of. I'm highlighting either on the education or the research side. At the same time, I always say, but there are challenges, and they're challenges we have to be thinking about hard because they threaten this university and they threaten some of the things we're doing. And you've, you've got to constantly be talking on that both end front. And, you know, for your long-term and, and, and really major donors, they understand. I mean, in fact, if you aren't honest with them, or if you aren't transparent with them, they know we don't, everything we do isn't well done. The legislature knows mm-hmm. that. My faculty know that. And so if you don't stand up and talk about some of the things that need to be improved and some of the problems you have, that you, you lose credibility with that as well. So let's hear yeah. about some of those. I mean, and you've yeah. been at Michigan. You know, yeah. you've been at many other universities. What do you sort of envy about what's at other institutions, land grant or the Ivy Leagues? And, you know, what do you see as some of the areas that really need to be addressed? So I really think the biggest frustration that I have hit around this university beyond sort of short-term issues is um, the level of micromanagement that we are under as a state agency. There are very few of our peer institutions, almost none, that are state agencies in the way that we are subject to every requirement of the state in terms of how we operate. And the constraints that places upon us as we make decisions and try to operate and move flexibly and be nimble as the world is changing around us are enormous. And, you know, particularly when people tell me you need to run this more like a business, you need to be nimble, you need to be changing. I just want to look at them because it's often coming from state officials and say, give me some freedom to do that. So, for instance, let me give you an example. And I should not be wasting my time on these things. Um, the um, uh, 
audit bureau at the state um, about a year ago raised a question about whether we could actually be spending the money that we generate from parking revenues to cross fund our bus system and our safe ride system and you know all you know mm-hmm. the, the bicycle racks and you know we were using this broadly to fund transportation and we'd been doing it for years and years and years and they looked at the legislation that governs this by the state and determined that legislation was ambiguous and that we had to stop doing that. We could only use our parking revenues for parking. Well, that suddenly, you know, that would have left us with a, a, a $4 million hole every year. I mean, we, you know, we have 13,000 parking spaces and we have 60,000 people who come to campus. You know, buses and um, bikes are a very important part of transportation and these are all integrated together and I, I can't just dump the bus system, right? Um, so... I can tell you, I've been up talking to legislators. My senior people have been. We have spent months and months and months, and there is now legislation in front of both the House and the Senate to add one word, I think it's one word, maybe it's two, to the statute that allows us to use this money to fund the full transportation system, not just parking. Now, <laughs> That's this a good is example. not worth our time. It's a great example. I mean, yeah. we should have discretion to run this university effectively. That's what I was hired to do. That's who I hire my senior staff for. And um, spending time on things like that is just a complete waste of time and energy on everyone's part. So I know there's been a lot of discussion about flexibilities around the university and indeed across the whole system. And I have to say that just has to happen. That has to happen or we are not going to be able to be the sort of university system, not just Madison, but the whole system, that this needs. And how do you see the relationship between, I, I, I think we never quite got to the UW-Madison relationship mm-hmm, yeah. to UW-Richland Center, you know, UW-Whitewater, the yeah. extension. You know, we, we are part of a system. Yeah. How is that both a plus and a negative yeah. from your standpoint as chancellor? Well, I think it's a plus on several ways. Um, you know, one is that um, there are a lot of people here who have different needs as they come into higher education, right? And some people are better prepared and some are not. And the University of Wisconsin at Madison is, you know, it's a research one university. It's a really top rated. We cut pretty high in terms of test scores and GPAs and people's background as to who we admit. Um, and if we were you know, a ship on our own bottom, there'd be a lot, many more complaints about the fact that people couldn't get in. And the fact that we have a huge system of universities, many of them really, really fine. Eau Claire, Whitewater, um, Milwaukee, those are really first rate, um, comprehensive universities. And um, it is, um, you know, it, it gives, uh, you know, and, and then of course you go to the two-year schools as well. It gives people a range of choices here. And many people will start at particularly the two-year schools and then transfer into Madison. And for many people, that is the right way to start. Okay. So that mix of opportunities for the state in terms of getting people into higher education from where they are, I think is highly important. Okay. The other advantage to us is we do have a single shared budget request to the state legislature. I don't go up there and argue for Madison and Eau Claire goes up and argues for Eau Claire and Richland Center argues for Richland Center. That would be a disaster. I've been in states where that's true and sort of every university for itself doing its own politics. And doing this is a unified way across the entire system. Um, is a far, far better and saner way for us to do our budgets every two years. Now, however frustrating the budget process may be, it would be a whole lot worse if we weren't mm-hmm. in a system. Now, the frustrations of the system are also very real. And, you know, we are different from many of the other schools. And sometimes we sort of have needs that are different. We can do things some of the other schools can do. So, for instance, we have a really first-rate group of lawyers. Many other schools use the system lawyers because they just aren't big enough to have their own legal system, their own legal session. We, we have our own legal section. We need it, given our size and scope. Um, so there's always tensions between mm-hmm. us and the system. I mean, that's just sort of inevitable if you're the flagship um, with a system that's serving a lot of schools that aren't like you. And so we're constantly talking with the system about why we need a little exception here or why this doesn't work for us. And, you know, sometimes we win and sometimes we lose those things. And um, But that, that's just part of doing business. More with the Chancellor when we continue in a moment with University of the Year. I'm Emily Auerbach. When he learned of the passing of Chancellor Rebecca Blank, Barack Obama wrote, Whether in government or academia, she devoted her career to reducing inequality and increasing opportunities for others, and she made everyone around her better. We remember Chancellor Blank today with a rebroadcast of an interview with her about her role as chancellor when the job was pretty new to her, including what a typical day looks like and why she loves the job. I'm Emily Auerbach, back with Chancellor Rebecca Blank, and we are talking about sort of the life of a chancellor. Give us a sense of a day in the life of a chancellor. 
Well, one of the reasons I love this job is that no day is like another, right? There's mm-hmm. always new things to do, and that, that that's fun. Um, I probably spend, um, you know, if you sort of average it, a week is a little easier because I'm probably out of the office at least one day a week on average that I'll be, you know, either out around the state or I'll be at a meeting or out in D.C. or, you know, doing something. Um I spend probably 25% of my time in one form or another on fundraising. Now, much of that is travel, where I go out to visit alums and, you know, I'm I'm out of the office. Um, And uh, I probably spend 30 to 40% of my time on what I think of as the management. I meet every Tuesday with all of my senior executive team. With some of them, I meet one-on-one after we have a shared meeting. I'm going through what are the issues of the day, what's happening in your area, what's happening in my area, what do we both need to talk about, what's coming up is the next crisis that we've Mm -hmm. got to keep our eyes on. Um, So there's a good amount of that. And then there's um, the rest of the time really is what I think of as, you know, meet and greet. I mean, it's going out to places in the community, going out to um, places around um, campus and going to a student event, meeting with a department, going to an award ceremony, um, giving a talk. Anything bizarre that you've been asked to do because you are a sort of a public figure with Bucky Badger and all kinds of other things? You are the face of the university. Anything where you found yourself doing something where you had to laugh about it? You know, I love Bucky Badger. I have yes. to say he's my favorite person. You know, I do admit I get asked to do some things and I sort of, my <laughs> husband looks at me and says, you, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a um, an, uh, a band that's a volunteer band that plays out in one of the parks every summer that is largely made up of university-related people, some of them retirees, and I get asked every summer to come and conduct um, something <laughs> with that band. And it's, you know, I, I've only been able to do it one summer, but I hope to last me a Again, it was great fun, but I can't say that's a skill that I ever thought I had. Yeah. And, you know, and you show up at various events that are well. You just learn something. You know, it's like it's like going to the Cranberry Marsh. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an opportunity to learn something at the same time that you can talk about the university and how it can be involved in this. And you know, that's just fun. You know, you, you know, it, it is always a question of, you know, this is always the question in politics of when do you put a funny hat on and when don't you, right? And there's people say never put a funny hat on. But, you know, in this job in particular where you're working with students, you you do you can't take yourself too seriously. You know, you do have to go out occasionally and um, be a little silly with, with things. And so these, I went out and, 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 and um, one of the things that our student services does is they run bingo games. So my husband and I went out and called bingo um, one <laughs> night. That was really fun. I hope we'll get to do that again. And I'm sure it was all over social media. And that leads me to another question. which is um, not just with social media, but in Mm -hmm. general, you know, one thing that I see is so radically different here on campus from back when I was an undergraduate Mm -hmm. is technology Mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways, changing how a university functions. Can you talk about that and and how you see technology as something very different than it would have been even two years ago or five years ago? Yeah, you mentioned social media. And of course, that really has changed things and how you get messages out and how things can go viral that cause problems. And so you've always got to be working, you know, on communications, and you know, it's it's a twenty four seven job of a sort that. 20 years ago, you know, communications was keeping in touch with two or three key people at each of the state newspapers. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was about it. So that job has changed enormously with technology. Um, I think the biggest um, potential advantage of technology for our campus is the ways that we can use some of these new technologies to expand and improve our educational mission. You know, of course, there's all sorts of technical changes in research. That goes without saying. But on the educational front, um, you know, I I think the biggest effect of these new educational technologies for a big public university like Wisconsin is not on our ability to do distance learning, though, of course, we will want and are Mm -hmm. engaging in that, but in our ability to do a better job of delivering those huge introductory classes that used to be 400 people with a speck of an instructor standing in front Mm -hmm. of the room and everyone in the back half was reading and looking at something else. And um, increasingly, we have technological uh, t- tools available to flip those classrooms, to have them acquire the the lecture knowledge elsewhere and to bring them together and have them interact with other students, interact with TAs and faculty, solve problems together, um, to be engaged in active learning. And all of the research is saying that the more you can do active learning, not just sit and listen, chalk and talk, um, the more that people learn and the more they retain. And you can see this in the outcomes of these classes. So um, we've got a new initiative going in which we're trying to 
you know, go through the various big introductory classes in the departments that teach them and engage them in a conversation about how they can use some of these new technologies more effectively in those classes. And we've got some departments doing a great job of that and some departments that we need to do some nudging on. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, uh, it's one of the exciting things about higher education right now is the new technologies make a number of things possible um, and expand your sense of how you can deliver education in really interesting ways and just really fun and challenging to think about how you use those well. It can be exciting. There's also something that sometimes yeah. feels to me like a loss when I go into the library and mm -hmm. see everybody on a computer and nobody actually in the stacks um, because the whole way that we retrieve information mm -hmm. is so different. And I see that my granddaughters are growing up knowing that you can just ask your phone for a mm -hmm. piece of information. You, you're clearly my age and not not the age of your daughters and granddaughters, right? No, I, I, I love a hard news, copy newspaper, right? I can't right. imagine um, anything less satisfying than sitting down with your newspaper on a Sunday. Um, but um, that's not the way a lot of 20-year-olds think. And um, we've got to adapt our teaching to where people are. And it, it's one of the things about ex universities that are exciting. It, it You have to change if you're around a university because the students are changing. And um, that, that keeps you young. You have to change, but you also have to keep defending, I think, yes. the value of the core liberal yes. arts, um, even when it seems they might yeah. be impractical or mm -hmm. others. I saw on one on one of your blog postings, because you have um, a blank, what is it called, blank slate? Blank or, slate. Yeah, yeah, that's a clever use of your name. Um, something about the graduation retention rates being quite good here at UW-Madison. So we just got the uh, numbers for the last academic year. And over the last six years, I believe now, we have steadily seen an increase in our retention rates from um, freshman to sophomore year. We're now at 96%, which is as good as, better than almost any publics and as good as many of the small privates are. If you look at our graduation rates, those have gone up steadily over the last six years and we're now well above the average of our peers. And um, our time to graduation is falling. And that's very important, particularly because that's highly linked to student debt and mm -hmm. the amount of student debt students take on. There are a number of things we've been doing that help that, not the least of which was a big infusion of money about six years ago. That's been spent, however, and we're now we're thinking about a number of other ways to move forward because we don't have money to put into this. Um, but um, it is incredibly important, I think, that we keep making progress on those outcomes. I'm very proud of those outcomes, and they are at least one indication that this is one of the top public universities in the country to attend if you're a senior in high school. I saw UW referred to as a public Ivy League mm -hmm. school, so that's kind of an interesting phrase. So imagine that I have you back in five years. We're both still doing this job. I'm doing mine. <laughs> you're doing yours. What do you hope in five years will be different? You know, what would be, what would have changed? What kinds of things do you see in the future? Yeah, you know, universities are, they change slowly. And as you say, there's certain fundamental aspects of universities about, um, you know, open ideas and research and um, as well as the mix of classes and the, the commitment to a liberal arts background and a distribution of classes. We are not teaching people for specific jobs. We're, we're building career skills for them. And I, that's not going to change. But, um, you know, my guess is that the whole um, – a biomedical area will continue to grow in strength and in presence and the number of majors going into that field. I think that whole area of the economy is going to grow. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I think that will continue to expand. Um, I would hope in five years that we're a little further along the line of if you ask me, how are you going to make this place financially stable over the long run um, with ongoing state cuts? Have you worked out some agreements with tuition and how you move forward? That will have happened. And similarly, I hope that we might have achieved a few flexibilities so that we can manage a little more nimbly as well. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where that goes. I would hope we've made some real progress when we talk about technological change. I'm going to be able to point to some parts of the university where we're delivering education differently. And lastly, let me tell you about one thing we're doing that I'm very excited about. Um, one thing we've never done here is strategically used our summer. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of our buildings sit empty. So mm -hmm. one of the things we're starting to think about is how do we strategically and creatively think about a summer curriculum on this campus, not just for our regular students, because there are many students who do stay here over the summer mm -hmm. and pick up one course. They don't have to stay a last quarter, maybe, um, that would you right. know otherwise add a lot more expense. But how do we use it as well entrepreneurially to bring people to this campus to take – 
a week of course or a month-long course or a course in, in the arts or in the languages or in um, mm-hmm. science for policymakers, um, you know, that, uh, you know, w- things that might both generate some additional revenue, but also really expand our educational mission here in the state and around the country. So I'm very excited about that. And I hope if we come back in five years, we'll be able to talk about how summer in Madison has changed. Because what better time to bring people to Madison for a week or a month um, right. than the summer? It's it's no be- more beautiful time in, in the state. Right. And they can go yeah. out on the Union Terrace in the yes. trademark chairs and so on. Yeah. I assume you could also do some teacher training workshops because yes. yes. teachers are off in yes. the summer. You can start thinking about all the things you can do as professional certification or educational add-ons or bringing international students here for a month or two mm-hmm. um, who might be, you know, interested in um, um, in engaging in one form or another with a U.S. university and a U.S. community. There's lots of opportunities there. Well, I'll look forward to that conversation. And I thank you for yeah. being here as my guest. Thank you, Emily. I'm Emily Auerbach, and we honor Rebecca Blank's passing today by remembering her with this rebroadcast of an earlier interview. I hope you can join us for the next hour of University of the Air.